23 and forward, um, when will things get to back to normal, quote unquote, right? Um, one of the tasks we were kind of put up to recently is trying to understand what's the potential impact of, of the looming recession, the supply chain disruptions, the war in Ukraine, um, the perspective uh, agitations in the Strait of Taiwan between China and Taiwan. You guys have probably heard of the recent saber rattling um, from you know American uh, political leaders about doing a, um, a semiconductor uh, stimulus here in America, right? To get more semiconductor fabrication back in America. Because right now, all right. of the chips for most of the products in the world are produced in Taiwan. And you probably also heard about Nancy Pelosi landing in Taiwan, uh, what was it, a week, two weeks ago, right? right? And all the tensions there with the Chinese firing missiles into the strait and, and running warplanes and stuff around. And so, you know, connecting those two things together, it's really interesting that we sit on this sort of really interconnected uh, logistics and, and, and global economy by design, which was designed in order to make it unpalatable for individual nations to go to war with others, right? Because when you're all dependent on each other, you're less liable to attack your neighbor who you depend on for so many of your resources and, and, and global you know, supply lines plus your own economy. And so, you know, it, it's just been interesting to see how that has come to impact us in terms of, you know, product capability, forecasting, revenue impacts, all kinds of stuff. I think, um, you know, I was talking about automotive a, a minute ago. As I, as I mentioned, I, I saw a report that Toyota's sales had tumbled 42% year over year, and it's, it's been some of their worst years on record, not because nobody wants Toyota, but because they haven't had the ability to get chips and parts. Uh, similarly, I was looking into Harley-Davidson um, recently on another project just to see if I could see some of their stuff, um, their, their, their business numbers. And while they had a big uptick at the end of 2020 into 2021 as people were staying locked down, but they couldn't travel. So a lot of people were doing domestic travel, getting toys and stuff. Right. Um, they've similarly been impacted where, um, you know, because they can't get a lot of components um, that really impacted their ability to meet fiscal um fiscal targets for merchandise, accessories, um, motorcycle sales, everything. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's exciting in the worst kind of way. It's interesting. Was an old Japanese uh, proverb, uh, may you live in interesting times was a, was an insult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting times. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, um, you know, I, so, um, I do have to ask, it's probably like terrible uh, to go back on, but you said looming recession. So yeah. The, yeah. Um, that one is, um, I, I'm I'm curious where you see, like, because uh, I, I know that we're, we're going through big shifts in, in all kinds of areas. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what, what areas you see um, um, being impacted the most and uh, like opportunities. Yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, the lens through which we were looking at it was really the growth of e-commerce, especially through the last couple of recessions, right? We had the uh, 2001 short recession um, that was, I think, a span of two or three months officially, right, officially. Um, then we had the 2007 recession, which spanned from uh, late 2007 into mid-2009. So that was the 2008 one, right? The but great recession, right? Lingering effects, even into like the 2010s, really, on some of those, right, with banking yeah. and whatnot. Um, and then we had a a sort of um, 
less of a well-known one, but in 2015, roughly, we had a manufacturing and oil recession, right? So average consumer isn't necessarily seeing like the effects of recession. It's not coming to like your housing and stuff like that, but it impacted product availability, pricing and stuff around those, et cetera. Um, and a lot of industries that were dependent on oil and, and some other materials um, and manufacturing capabilities themselves had like a, a recession, right? Um, and so the lens that we were looking at it through was really like, how has e-commerce charted these waters? How has e-commerce grown? And it's been very interesting to see that, you know, you think back to 2008, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. You know, you remember Obama was in office. Um, you know, we had the Tea Party movement in Occupy Wall Street, not too much uh, further after that. Th these things seem very close, but then you think, okay, I, I pulled the Wayback Machine for some, some e-com sites uh, from then, including like Bonobos, which was born in 2007. Um, and it's just such a different experience. So when we're trying to look to the past to forecast the future and kind of understand how things play, um, we find that traditionally you can't look too far back because things that happened a couple of centuries ago don't have the same dynamics that they have today. They're not really good analogs anymore. You can maybe talk about cyclical epochs, but in the world of digital, something as close as 2008 is worlds apart from where we are today. You had the iPhone 3G was just coming out, right? That was only available yeah. on AT&T. So mobile commerce wasn't really a thing, right? App Store hadn't yet been released. Um, you know, we didn't have the kind of things we have today. And it's been interesting to see that. But overall, through that whole period, um, e-commerce as a percent of retail has like skyrocketed, right? And what we're finding is, you know, with COVID, as you're, you're probably aware, um, a number of different industries that traditionally have been e-commerce skeptical or difficult to run for e-commerce have really skyrocketed, right? Um, a, a good example would be like grocery, which from the numbers I remember pulling from some of these um, industry sites had grown like 111% year over year from 2019 to 2020, right? So you have all these things that have just been forced to adapt and now those have become new standards, right? Buy online, pick up in store and taking an omni-channel view on your digital marketing versus siloing between these are our retail units and these are our, our, our digital assets and stuff like that and saying, okay, how do I more effectively look at this from an omni-channel point of view? Because that's what the, the clients who are buying are doing now, right? They're, they're no longer differentiating between buy online, ship it the, the Amazon way, right? People are doing that, but there's also like the, hey, buy it online and just go down the street and pick it up from the store because somebody's put it in like an Instacart type thing and it's ready for me to just grab. So it's it's kind of interesting, but I think I, I didn't quite address your point. I think I kind of circled around it. Um, um, siloing bad. I got yeah. it. <laughs> Don't silo. Yeah, um, the, uh, yeah and um, and how do you? I mean, okay. So this is this is a, I guess it creates an interesting dynamic because if you're head of a department. You know, this is your team and I bucketed my, my, I've allocated this money for this team and this team and this team. Um, and everyone says, well, we are all kind of mixed results together. But so, um, I, you know, I, I guess that's, uh, that creates an executive, uh, you know, a management problem um, as, 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 you know, uh, marketers, we've been able to like collaborate on just like, Hey, you know, can you uh, take a look at this? Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, where, where do you start, you know, where would you suggest, uh, you know, ex 
the uh, person who's got to like uh, account for those dollars? Like, how do they how do they start bridging that gap or like fudging the numbers in there? I guess. Well, so I think what we came up with is there's essentially like two types of plays. There's defensive plays and then there's offensive plays. And these largely mirror what you would do in any downturn, whether you're talking about digital marketing or investing or whatever, right? So you could go either way, depending on your particular situation, but you might say, okay, from a defensive play, we're going to slash our budget on our growth marketing, right? And we might slash our budget on more experimental things that we were doing. So a great example of this would be, um, you know, some banks and financial institutions have started doing ads on TikTok, which is highly experimental, right? Because TikTok's fairly, fairly new, right? And when you talk about like a financial services thing, it doesn't seem like a, a, a really good fit at first glance, right? But we brought on people on the team who have that experience, who've run that. And I did ask them about like, how does this even work? It doesn't make sense to me. But when they explained, it makes sense. And so you say, okay, well, that's an experimental growth feature, right? You might pull back advertising on that and focus on like your core items that are your highest ROAS, your lower funnel stuff, maybe some protective um, areas, right? Where you're ensuring you're not getting conquested, but say, okay, that's a defensive play, right? You might also restructure your team and say, okay, you know, some people are getting laid off or hours are cut or something in order to make the numbers work, right? And there's a few of these different ones, but as an offensive play, this goes into like the, you know, Berkshire Hathaway school of investing, right? And the, the school of investing is you greedily save money for times like this when the economy's down and you heavily spend, right? So an offensive play would say, look, when the economy is down like this, now's the time to get those technology upgrades you were looking at because they're going to be very cheap because the technology vendors are going to be squeezed, right? So you say, okay, now might be a good time to go out and acquire some other companies, right? Because those companies are looking to either be bought or shed some, some expenses, right? So if you're in a comfortable position, you say, okay, defensively, we've cut some costs here, but offensively, we're making acquisitions while the chips are down for these other players where things are favorable to us, right? From a talent acquisition standpoint, you might say, okay, instead of like cutting uh, things in the department, or maybe we do that, but we reallocate those funds because in a down market where people are being laid off or, or people aren't hiring as much, right? Then talent is easier and cheaper to acquire, right? They're more willing, it's less uh, expensive, et cetera. So it, you could go either way, depending on what your situation is. And most companies, especially large ones, are gonna deploy both sides of those of spectrums, depending on what's really um, most valuable to them from a strategic standpoint. Yeah, I like that. Just taking, you got to have that experimental budget. And definitely said there, yeah. um, being able to shift things. Um, yeah, I, I mean, um, well, Casey, you got. It? I was, I was just going to circle back to the whole ecom and measurements. So, I'm assuming like when you're tracking the little recessions throughout the times, you're looking at like big companies like Amazon, then you got, I call them mid tiers, but I would even consider like Adidas a mid tier over Nike being a uh, top in. And then you got your small mom and pops. Are you looking mm -hmm. at all of them or just like the big yeah. mid tiers or. So actually it's even simpler than that in a couple of ways, but yeah, we did try to do that. There are some challenges with that. First off, um, a lot of these companies had, in 2008, either no no real digital presence, yeah. or it was so rudimentary 
that it wasn't really tied to the recession itself. And most of the innovation came from a technology standpoint, 2012, 2015, that sort of stuff, right? So trying to like tie those in was more difficult when when you talk about things outside of like Amazon, for instance, which has been around since what, 98, 99. And yeah. so it's got that kind of span. Um, what we looked at instead was the US uh, government tracks things like this. So the, the Census Bureau provides, you know, uh, retail uh, revenue and sales figures, and they provide e-com breakouts of that as well. And so we could chart, here's how e-com has grown over the recessions as a percent of retail and stuff overall. And you can look at that outside of looking at the individual companies to get the trends and understand, you know, what the market overall is doing. But then, yeah, we did try to do where possible, double clicks into different types, mid-market, smaller, large, and then different types of, of uh, e-com setups, whether it's like a marketplace like Amazon, a direct-to-consumer on an owned platform, or a reseller, retailer like Zappos or something, for instance. Okay. I think the recessions you're talking about, um, there's, there's <clears throat> not an economist, <laughs> um, but I, I think there's um, the... Uh, we're uh, we're in a new industrial revolution, if you will, uh, and one of the one of the challenges that was uh, that uh, that we've seen is that um, the uh, how to put this the energy efficiency, like like an animal um, eats something, right? Let's say a predatory animal goes and eats the most amount of energy it might get out of that is twenty percent maximum. And probably less than that. Most of the rest is burned off in energy and, and heat, yeah. right? And um, and uh, and this is true of our of our industry. We put in uh, you put in a a uh, five dollars into your uh, five dollars into your uh, gas tank, and you're getting at most a dollar out. I believe the aggregated efficiencies, uh, is, uh, I had heard it called, is I think the United States topped out like at maybe close to fifteen percent. Um, uh, Japan had reached over 19. Uh, I think uh, Germany was came in second, like 17 or something like that. I don't remember. And again, I'm not an economist, uh, but this is um, and and this is the problem. Even if you have, uh, even if you had fusion, right? Okay, and we can throw massive amounts of energy. You have extraordinary energy loss, right? We're just it, that efficiency is a problem, right? Um, now we're in this optimizing state. We have all this automation, like we have all this, yeah. we have the chips, we can go faster, we can go faster, we can go faster, but you still, that, that efficiency is still lacking no matter what. And that's where we're, we're starting to find those areas, uh, re-envisioning things. Uh, and this is where I believe a great amount of the, uh, the uh, any kind of recession can be offset. Um, because you can only pump so much in the oil and get so much back out, right? You're like, now we're like, okay, we we've capped out what we can do. Now there's demographic changes throughout most of the most of the advanced world that is going to see their they're going to have to start finding like labor shortfalls, skill especially skilled labor shortfalls, yeah, labor um, and um, and so they have to find a way to to deal with that. Uh, uh, and we're we're doing that too. So we're, we're okay. We haven't changed the federal, you know. And I, I don't want to get into politics, but um, there, it's, it's a weird gray zone, right? Um, but you're seeing the uh, you're seeing the uh, the worker is now having more and more bargaining power, 
right? So even though the uh, the the federal minimum wage isn't changing, you've already had um, like uh, Bank of America. I think their their minimum is twenty one, right? Um, now that has to be taken into account that we're looking at the the uh, you know all signs look like the four day work week is coming. If you're paid hourly, that's you know okay. So that you're, you're going to have to account for that. Um, yeah. But we also have a lot of people who are increasing an increasing number of people that are overemployed, working yeah. more than one yeah. job, um, and not just not just uh, you know. Um, the small, uh, you know, I'm trying to make it, but people who are making good money and choose that they want to continue doing more of that. Um, uh, I see the, um, I'm sorry, I don't want to dominate, but uh, um, just, I see where uh, there's going to be, urbanization was one of the, one of the great ways to grow uh, in the earlier industrial revolutions. Digitization is that way now. And in this environment, we have to digitize faster with more people getting on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I think we can grow past it. It's my just personal belief. I think there's going to be some places that, that are ignoring the warning signs of, of that imperative to change. They're going to be in a, in a bad, bad way. Um, but I think there's going to be some areas that are going to boom. Are you talking about areas geographically, like new tech hubs? Or are you talking about areas in terms of business and areas in terms of digital capabilities, business. like business? Yeah. business. Do you have any right. idea so, what you're thinking of? Um, well, so um, supply chains is a big problem, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. if you have a physical constraint on things, there's going to be um, so service service <laughs> jobs. You remember the uh, like? So we had the big Texas freeze, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to get there were so many burst pipes i know so many people who had burst pipes perfectly like new homes it's not just eventual older homes it's like yeah they like uh pools whatever minimum six to eight weeks to get someone to come out to fix their pipes <clears throat> it was months for the city all yeah. right <laughs> this um there's not enough we we've had uh we have a retiring wave of baby boomers who uh to their credit, I mean, the average baby boomer uh, household, both parents worked and many of them more than one job. Um, on average, heavier on blue collar work, uh, trucking, um, plumbing, <laughs> HVAC, all kinds of that skilled labor. And now we have a, I don't want to say over-educated, but over-educated um, millennial and Gen Z coming that are, are like, they were said, here's the... Uh, you you go to school, you work hard, and the job will be there, and yeah. that wasn't true. Yeah. Right. Um, and now, now any um, of them, if there's, if you look at the service sector, many can start off six figures, no experience. <clears throat> really. And it, it is not. It is not an abnormal thing. It is booming. Once there's a recognition that 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 uh, a lot of uh, work can go in that direction. <laughs> Um, it'll be positive. The, um, um, the, uh, and then you see the stock market, right? As interest rates go up, right? Lending gets more expensive. Now yep. you have the, I'm not going to bet on the long-term play on, on a bunch of tech companies that are like, maybe this will pay out. Maybe this will pay out. Maybe this will pay out. Um, you're going to start seeing more going into, I'm going to be a little <laughs> bit more 
judicious about and more more careful about the companies that I'm I'm betting on. So you're going to see tech. You're seeing tech companies are are seeing that crunch. I don't like Netflix, right? I don't think they're going away. I don't think that's it at all. I think they're going to see a uh, a, uh, a less investment coming in, but I think they're a solid company and I do not invest. I am not giving investment advice. Um, um, so uh, I think they'll be perfectly fine. This has always been the question, is the economy the stock market or is it the workers, all right? Because by definition, our GDP, um, unless it gets changed, we had two quarters where we were uh, down growth, right? Okay, so that's a technical recession. Uh, I don't want to politicize what the definition of a recession is, but we've actually had worker growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I heard about that article recently. Uh, that was that was an interesting one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It gets weird. Um, digital products <laughs> don't require a supply chain. Yeah. So if you're creating a training course, or if you're if you're taking like as marketers, you've got these lists of, of resources, right? And you sell that online. Um, whereas, I, you know, we might have just given away some of these things away for free here. I can send this over to you. If you put that out, some people would love that stuff. For us, it's like, oh, I've had this forever. Oh, okay. I don't know. 10 bucks, right? Uh, you know, and finding more and more, I don't know, just... Casey can Casey can uh, throw in on that, but I, I see a lot of opportunities in service sector. I see a lot of areas for people to be like entrepreneurial and are in, and independent. Um, yeah. So, anyways, um, there. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's interesting because I've often wondered. You know, I was doing some work on the car recently, taking it in to to get some stuff done, and it's going to be expensive. And I was like. I've talked to a couple of different places that are specialists in the car. Right. And they say, Hey, we, we just, we can't staff people. Like it's, it's, there's literally nobody to staff for it. And I've often wondered like, Hey, I have a passion for my car and mechanical work, work where you have a physical, tangible thing that you're doing seems rewarding in that you can see the, the benefits of what you're working on and your work varies from day to day. Could I get into that? Right. Like I have a, what I like to think is a logical mind that my, my girlfriend and close friends might disagree, but, um, <laughs> I like to think that I might be able to transition from like digital to, to physical in a, like a mechanical, uh, sort of capacity and then go work on some of these shops or start my own shop because there's clearly a demand, you know, there's backlogs of vehicles. Um, but the idea of the barrier to entry being, you know, some sort of mechanical training, of finding a place to lease or rent, uh, you know, setting aside all that, that time. It, it's honestly, it's, it's a little bit scary to me, but I, I love the idea that, you know, there's a more of a market right now for people to go into physical sort of skilled labor. Um, and it's seeing a bit of a resurgence because yeah, I think your point around over education and, and sort of the broken promises of that dream have disillusioned a lot of people. Um, some of the happiest people I know, you know, do mechanical work all the time. You know, they're custom fabricating stuff. They're they're letting their, their creativity run in their day-to-day -day life because they have these skills where, yeah, it pays the bills, but more importantly, like it's just something they enjoy, right? Like yeah. it's rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, doing something you enjoy. I think <clears throat> so like, yeah, it's huge. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, 
So you like you'd like getting in working on cars and getting paid to do that? I will. I would say like I have the desire to and up until recently, I've been able to do basic things like change my supercharger oil, change the oil filters, that sort of stuff. Like I'm familiar with things, but I haven't had the space or the tools. And that's the other thing um, to do a lot of the more advanced stuff. Right. So like if I want to do timing chains or belts or anything, you really got to have a specialized set of tools and you've got to have like a dry environment to go in and do that. I recently got like a, a polishing and cutting kit uh, with an orbital sander for the first time. And it took me like half a day to, to basically um, clay bar the car and then use the cutting compound to take off all the remaining hard edges in the top layer and then go after that with the polishing compound and really kind of smoothing it rid of some of the micro scratches that you see a car accumulate over time. Um, but it felt really rewarding, right? It was like, okay, this is my vehicle and I'm doing this. And it's a mechanical thing, almost like a rite of passage that I think, it, you know, to the point being made earlier, you don't see very often as, as a lot of people are moving away from cars, especially like Gen Z and stuff. The idea of having like a car and polishing it and making it yours is something like my parents, your parents would do, but I feel like kind of got skipped somewhere. And so it was rewarding in that regard too. And I think, you know, um, some of these other career avenues you mentioned, such as plumbing, such as HVAC and stuff, there's plenty of people doing that, but there's not as many as before. And those things have their own rewards. They have a lot of challenges too. Um, you know, especially in Texas, you talk about doing HVAC in the summer. Oof, that's that's tough. Yeah, that's bad. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's also one of those things where you, you've got a tangible physical output, and you know, whoever's getting in service, you're not just helping like a corporation. You're helping an individual who's really going to appreciate that. You know, you're gonna not just make their night, but possibly their year, and that's got to be one of the best feelings. We lost his mic. That's Kevin. You still there? Um, I don't know if you can hear us. He's not responding. Yep, we lost him. Blink if you can hear us. No, we can't hear you. <laughs> so this is a good time. So we didn't do introductions at the beginning. So. My name is Casey Watkins. I am with Sith Marketing. We have my co-host, Kevin. I'll point to the right side over here. He can't say anything, so that's Kevin Adams. He is the greatest, most magnificent man you'll ever meet. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? I was going to say more mean things, but <laughs> better not. <laughs> I was wondering if he's going to be able to get his audio back and defend yeah. himself. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, yeah, happily. Uh, I'm Ryan Landers. Um, I'm with Boston Consulting Group. I've been there for about four years now. Uh, prior to that, Agency Life. Um, and that's where I know Kevin from when we ran different departments at the same uh, award-winning agency in DFW. So uh, excited to be on the show. Um, it's kind of been a nice little freewheeling discussion. Uh, and yeah, thank you for having me on. Awesome. So what exactly do you do? Cause I like, I don't, I asked myself, I, I've, I, I've known you for like 34 minutes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's a great question. So I work for, for the digital ventures division of Boston consulting, right? So, um, if you do like a Google search for BCG DV, that's us. Um, that division was founded sometime around 2013, I believe, if I remember right. It's not super old. Um, 
as a startup incubator and a new company creator for our you know uh, client partners. So it was founded largely by a lot of um, Silicon Beach and Silicon Valley um, ex startup founders, VCs, angels, investors, that sort of stuff. Um, and it has a really cool feel to it. If you go to our, our Manhattan Beach offices right there in the Silicon Beach area in, in Southern California, it feels like like Facebook in its early days where um, it's just got these super interesting open office concepts with lots of beautiful geometry inside and whatnot. Um, very airy, open to collaborate with. And it has this energy because you, you're dealing with some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. Um, like literally some of the most intelligent people I've, I've known work work at BCG. And um, you're, you're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs who've started several businesses. You're talking to people who've um, successfully run new companies and, and got them off the ground and done their exits and stuff. And we all come together to basically create entire new businesses from the ground up. And then um, that entails everything from conceptualizing and doing Shark Tank pitches with the client partner um, to setting up the legal framework, getting the investment rounds set up, the seed funding, everything that's required for that, then doing the um, ethnographic research, the viability testing, whatnot. And then from there, incubating these companies in, from, from concepts and, and basic market viability tests into actual full-fledged companies, complete with customers, cash flow, et cetera. And then we hand that over back to the uh, the companies that, that helped uh, kick those off. Now, sometimes we'll work with the companies and have like a stake in it. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, the companies will be under the parent company again. Other times they might be um, entirely independent, right? So you might say, hey, this is a really cool company and have no idea that it's actually been incubated and started by, you know, another company that that's deriving benefit from it being there, right? So it's kind of a cool setup um and then on top of that for our division which is which is growth um we do a lot of those optimizations and um efficiency um functions that kevin had mentioned earlier about you know now's the time when it's time to start getting very efficient in, in marketing really getting to um more efficient spend better returns that sort of stuff and so uh when he'd mentioned that kind of thinking back to prior days there was digital was still new for a lot of companies. There was a bunch of just growth and kind of doing whatever. Nowadays, as you mentioned, it's more about, okay, how do we get more out of this? Or how do we become more effective at what we're doing? And where can we test to expand and get experimental, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the call. And so that's what we do on like a day-to-day -day basis with a, a variety of companies. Um, this has been really cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. All right, Kevin. You missed all that. <laughs> Oh yep. man, we still yep. can't hear you. Wait, uh, you am I coming through? Yeah, oh, there you go. All right, uh, yeah, I caught the uh, caught the end about like testing and like. The, I think that is that is, uh, uh, um, coming in with rote processes that are just this is what we do, rinse and repeat every single time. I mean, there's like can be a general framework, but yeah. I I don't see any company that can sit sit on something they were doing five years ago and ex and and keep going. Um, I love a company that lets you know that they let let you uh, like test stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting is like a lot of the companies we work with are big and they're usually fairly effective already. Um, and what we do is we usually come in and they'll have effective processes, but our goal is to challenge some of those and shake things up and see if there's 
an even more effective way of doing something or a, a new place to expand, right? So you might say, okay, you know, we're doing, uh, you know, uh, PPC ads. We've got all our campaigns are in a row. We're using, you know, for instance, automation in it. It's pretty effective. Um, we might come in and say, okay, well, if we play with like the ROAS targets, if we take some of the control out of the automation and do like a bionic approach where there's a human guided element to that automation, um, can we really trust the results that we were getting previously just on their own? Can we maybe shake this up a bit and, and provide some new inputs? And, you know, in a number of cases, not, not every test works, right? Like they're not all going to win, but it does validate, you know, that approach. And in a good number of tests, those do work, right? So we have these pilots we'll launch and then we'll take the learnings from that, feed them back into a virtual cycle where we create new pilots from those learnings and scale them. So maybe we start with a specific campaign or a type of campaign or a market if we're doing match market testing, we'll see if that's successful. And if it is, we'll expand those and validate that and say, okay, it, does it work on a larger scale? And if so, then we'll make that recommendation to deploy, you know, across the, the board. So, and and that's the case, even again, with very successful companies already. Um, we've seen some some pretty big realizations with some of them that are, are doing really well already online. Um, but people become either overloaded because there's too much. And so you can't chase every opportunity and, and we'll come up with some new ones or, you know, complacent um, just because, hey, you know, it's, it's a character trait for all of us. You know, it works. And if it's working, we don't often always search outside all the time or we search close to home. Right. And so sometimes you need somebody to say, OK, well, let's go search, you know, away from home and, and do something completely out of the ordinary. And, uh, you know, that that works. Awesome. So before the show, we were talking about heading into a private, more uh, privacy, uh, um, <clears throat> privacy environment or whatever. Um, can't word. Um, <laughs> um, so like, are you uh, and you're and you're talking like moving away from the siloed approaches? Like what, what kind of general ways do you like look and measure the tests? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. A lot of clients have been focused on bottom funnel um, because it's highly measurable and it's very effective from a cost perspective. And it's been difficult to say, let's test up into like upper funnel stuff because maybe they've done some testing there in the past and it hasn't been very effective from a cost standpoint or something. But um, a great example, of this would be, um, you know, we had a client who had, who's in the automotive industry who was doing largely branded terms and that was because it was very efficient they're a very well-known um player in the industry but you know you got to figure some of your branded terms you're paying for free real estate you're going to get organically so you would really want to pull some of that spend back and really only deploy it where you're being conquested or if there's a real benefit for instance to deploying that in this case they were using the ad formats to some additional benefits um, that they weren't getting organically and so there's a case to be made for that but we could pull some of that back still and say okay we could carve out 250K from your annual budget from this, from just branded stuff and reallocate that elsewhere, right? And so we ran some pilots and what we found worked interestingly very well, and we didn't think it would at first, um, was Google discovery ads where we were conquesting competitors based on the um, category of vehicles that they were offered, right? So if you think of like, take Ford for instance, right? They've got pickup trucks, SUVs, sedans, coupes, right? So you might say, okay, we wanna conquest I don't know, Chevy, right? And then we also want to conquest Honda or something. And we were running discovery ads for the categories of vehicles and the um, and the competitors, right? And discovery ads are a type of display in Google and display typically doesn't fare super well. 
but it was a space where none of the, the competition existed. So the entry costs were low and we were getting uh, exposure because these weren't retargeting. These are these are exposure to like new audience. Right. Um, and in a way, kind of similar to like uh, Facebook, where you can take audience traits and, and target those instead of keywords. Right. We were we were doing a little bit of both in discovery. And what we found was like actually our CAC was lower than their other ad types, surprisingly. Like they had a, I think like a 500 and something dollar CAC last time they tried something like that with a new model launch. And we were able to get to like three something, which was like in line with their paid efforts. Um, so we're like, this is an entirely new channel you guys can run with. We ran it across like a number of different models and, and categories and um, peers, you know, uh, different combinations of things to see like is there only one option that works does it work across several like is there a standout and we found like standouts in terms of hot spots where there was more volume more activity right but you know all of them overall were still worth doing and so that would be a good example of uh one of those things where uh we we didn't have super detailed targeting we were just kind of making some some basic lists right and then um trying an entirely new tactic on what would be considered upper funnel, right? Because we were just going after like categories versus like very specific stuff. Were you running carousel? Um, no, they were running not carousels, but like um, rotating image creatives. Okay. Yeah. And I'm just curious because I've yeah. done some on discovery and some has been, I've had hit or miss. I've had good experience. Yeah. I've had like, uh, and I, I needed to do more testing in that one. Did you find uh, a, re I hate to talk about uh, click fraud, but did you find less fraud on discovery than on, on just ge general GDN or display? Um, we weren't running GDN display. So um, they had basically been running social. They've been running a lot of search, not much in GDN. I don't know who their display partner was. It was probably through a different DSP. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that the we, we weren't really experiencing much in the way of fraud rates um, because how we were doing it, again, since we're measuring like um, the acquisition and stuff in the forms, we could see the form data coming through and most of it was pretty legit. So, yeah, it didn't seem to be a, a big problem, which was, which was again, test more exciting. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And, that and sounds yeah, maybe it's just, you know, right place, right time, right client, you know, maybe less saturation. I have no idea. Like, that was kind of the thing. Again, we went in expecting it not to do super well, but just to say, like, even if it doesn't blow out of the water, even if it's within ballpark of your other costs, it's an entirely new channel we can saturate and they have the market budget to do it. So why not? Right. But then it ended up being fairly comparable. So I was like, OK, well, then do more of that. Well, you're, uh, since you talked about uh, already carving out an experimental budget, uh, that seems like easier to, to hey, that's going to be spent either way. So yeah. now it's a decision over what we're going to spend it on. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a yeah, good point. I like that. Yep. Yeah, and I, I got I to gotta, uh, really retest that area. I've got, I've got yeah. someone that's running on it, and it was like, uh, at first mm -hmm. it wasn't too good, and then after 
few weeks, suddenly I was like, oh, the numbers are starting to look really good. But um, yeah. so I guess I didn't push it, push the uh, envelope too much in other areas, other clients. So, and you know, that's the thing is like, again, it could be a, a client or, or vertical specific thing, or it could come down to the creative or like, there's so many variables that go into like, why it would be successful. But that's, that's the beauty of like, okay, the message is not like, Hey, this is a good channel or tactic. The message is, always be testing even what doesn't seem like it would work because sometimes it pays off right like yeah yeah i've tested some stuff that shouldn't have worked and then suddenly like what the heck i had yeah. to go back yeah. and find an find a story that fit that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah i've got a i really got to double back on on that one um, uh, i think of testing too um we had another large client recently um who just their A-B testing approach was fraught with problems and their measurement was just completely faulty and they were jumping all kinds of illogical conclusions with, ugh. so always make sure your measurement protocols are in place and your, your test data is clean because it can wildly change your outcomes. I mean, you're talking about like last click or? or no, in this particular scenario, we're talking like standard optimizing A-B or A-B-N testing on the front end of a website. Um, but uh, they got they they were testing incongruent variables. So they had, for instance, let's say your standard A B test would be like version A versus version B, right? You test one variable you're changing, right? And sometimes you can test like a, a a default versus something with several things, but you're not trying to suss out the value of each of those things. You're just saying overall, if I change five things, is this version B better, right, than version A? And what they were doing was they were their hypotheses in their in their um, documentation was saying we're testing for this, but what they were actually presenting were completely different messaging, um, different layouts and stuff, uh, different promotions between the two ver versions of the of the page. So they weren't getting clean reads. It's like, what are you doing, right? What are you um, testing oh, for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, then you know, it's a common fallacy like in Optimizely and VW and others where you can track any kind of thing you want, right? So you might say, okay, I want to track, you know, engagements with navigation buttons to see if I swap something into the header. Does that lead to more clicks um, through the nav if it refers to something that's there? Or you might say like, I want to track things below the fold because I want to see if, if people scroll down and then click because they're engaged with the, this thing, right? What was happening was they were sort of cherry picking items um, that were, you know, being tracked because they're, they're basically tracking every click. And then like, well, this click, it didn't reach statistical significance, but I had a 20% better click than these other things. And it's like, well, that's because your N is so small, but it doesn't make any difference. And who cares if it's that element, right? Your, your, the core thing you said you were testing, the hypothesis didn't bear out. So like these other things are just noise, they're red herrings in your data and they have no validity, but they had built an entire program around this for like two years. And I came in and looked at their test because the first thing we did was like, okay, you know, let's go through these different work streams of, you know, pay search, display, uh, social, out of home, you know, their front end. And as part of the front end discovery, it's like, okay, well, we've been running tests. Great. That sounds great. Let's take a look at your backlog. Make sure I don't duplicate stuff you've done recently. See if there's areas where we can do stuff differently that, that worked out. And then I started digging into the results and it's like, oh man, you guys are telling me you don't want to do this because you've already done it. And I'm looking at your data and it says you didn't determine anything, which is... Ugh, oh my god yeah yeah it was really bad so um that was kind of an interesting one and i guess the, the point there is just again 
the the confidence they had um, had led to some incorrect conclusions, and you always have to make sure your your data is correct. Um, I think I've I've you know definitely learned that the hard way in the past as well, but it's something I try to keep in mind nowadays. Yeah, data without context, right? And it's like yeah. if I have three links on a page, or you know one, mm -hmm. right? Well, I got a bunch of clicks on this page. Well, you had multiple items that could be clicked, and the other one, yeah. I don't, I don't, or, um, or they were like yeah. running paid traffic to one version and not another, and it's just like because they didn't think to isolate it properly and split it, right? So it's like it comes down to it. Um, kind of reminds me of that 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 saying: "There's lies, damned lies, and statistics." You know, <laughs> I like that one. Uh, I gotta steal that. <laughs> the uh, Everything on the show is copyrighted, so you can't say that one anymore. It's ours. Sorry, no, it's there you go. <laughs> the first one's free. You got to pay for the next one. <laughs> Man, I, I remember. I remember. I had a. This is like more simplified one, but it was like a bounce rate question. Someone was like coming to me. It's like, why is the bounce rate so bad on this page? We we're like ninety percent bounce rate, um, and um, and uh, I was digging through their analytics. And it, it was their contact page that was driving like the high bounce. And it also happened to be the page they were driving to people to in their email send outs. To the contact oh, page? To the con, uh, yeah. Why? I, um, this is like, I don't know. This is like 20, <laughs> uh, 2009, 2008. I don't know. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna, I, it's been a bit. Um, but uh, and I, I didn't ask them why the um, but yeah but they had it turns out that they were actually getting a lot of contacts but at the if you clicked on the email link um, since that wasn't triggering an event or anything like that mm -hmm. there was no way to tell like if they they picked up the phone and called there wasn't call tracking on the site at the time yeah. so uh, the 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 person could have been doing exactly what they was intended but it wasn't it was going to show up as a, as a bounce. Um, yeah. So there yeah. was just absolute no context. You can't draw any conclusion out of that. Well, and that reminds me of another one recently. Um, I got called into this project as like a favor for one of the partners. Like, hey, we're working on a project. We just want somebody to take a second pass at, at this other angle, right? Take a look at it, right? And they this client had basically spent something like a, a quarter million dollars last year overhauling their site. But they went from a well-structured site, which had very clear pages, service offerings, that sort of stuff, right? Nice visuals to a very heavily visually driven like new site where it's full of image and video content, but the language is very lofty and it you can't really tell what they're actually offering because it's so lofty. And the images and videos are largely stock photos, right? So they're not actually even of the services or facilities, which is crazy, right? Um, and apparently it, it, it was one of those cases where um, you know, somebody on the executive team really enjoyed it. And so they kept it and everybody else seemed to like it because they felt like, oh, it's more pretty. Um, and that aligns with our ethos. But, you know, I was like, you're, you're going to kill your SEO, right? Like you just got rid of half the content on the yeah. site. Yeah. yeah. So we got into a little bit of a, a conversation with, you know, I went through and did some basic research finding, like not super in depth or anything. But I was like, yeah, here's some, some problems and challenges. And apparently the agency who designed it was wanting to like uh, challenge some of that. I was like, okay, fair enough. Like, I'm happy to say, like, I didn't take a full pass. I was just called in for a short time. Um, but, you know, when I said, hey, these changes you made are, are going to have a negative impact on your client's site performance, you know, and here's A, B, C, and Y. And she goes, well, you know, 
we have data that that uh, contests that. Like our, in our analytics, our bounce rate dropped from like forty five percent to twelve percent. I'm like, and you didn't think that was odd that your bounce rate went to like low double digits? <laughs> like, have you ever known of a twelve percent bounce rate? Like it's it's almost impossible. They got down to like nine percent single digits. There's not a site in the world that does that. And apparently, like I flipped through on the call, I was like, well, I, I remember coming across this bit of data, and I called it out in one of our other internal emails, but it hadn't gotten circulated back to the team there. And when they overhauled the site, they'd screwed up the analytics, and so that was firing double page views on core pages, which of course means that the <laughs> page count goes up and the bounce rate drops. And I said, I saw I screenshot and I showed it. I was like, so see, here's the double view, like here's the double event firing. And here's why your pay, your your bounce rate went off a cliff. I was like, it's because, and I could say, I could see, I was like, here's the day you launched the new site, and you could watch it go from 45 to 12. <laughs> I was like, was so confident in her her data, and it never triggered a thought of like, why is this changed so dramatically? So, yeah, don't don't always be, I don't know, like just double checking and stuff. I double check your stuff. It's... Yeah, and I make that mistake sometimes. I'll, I, I presented like a chart um, today uh, internally, and the chart was based on percentages. And there's a function where you can have the percentages displayed as whole numbers, like absolutes, right? But instead of converting it, like it had a total at the top, and then the percentages were whatever the percentage each item totaled up to for that total, right? So if, you're, if your total at the top is 100, then row one might be 10%, row two is... 20% row three is like 30, right? And instead of showing what the figure was, it was showing, it had just converted the percent to a dollar amount. So it just said $10, $20, $30. And then the figures were completely out of whack with the rest of the chart. But because I moved new data in, I missed that. And yeah, so it was like, okay, it's a very simple fix, but it was also embarrassing because like I, I should have caught that because the number is, once you look at it again, you're like, oh yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But because I'd been in a rush, I, I completely messed it up. Thank God I don't make mistakes. I've had a yeah, I've had enough um, like uh, extra extra firing conversions. I'm like, this is awesome, and <laughs> you should just look at the data, look at these conversions. Then going back and looking at the pages like that that's firing on is like, how is that happening? This looks like ah oh, crap. <laughs> um, there went my test. There went my bragging. Um, gotta walk that one back. Um, yeah, I've had enough uh, sheets that you know hunting down that one. They're like, why does this look wrong? Yeah, no, no, I've done the math yeah. right. It's it's got to be good. <laughs> Excel's a nightmare for that. We had um, another one recently where I had to. As part of this project, we were kept collecting um, different data sources, and none of them would agree, none of them would align. And we finally found one single data source that would tell the story we were looking for across different slides. But it meant like I had to go back and and redo all the slide work. And unfortunately, this data source, the categories were closely aligned to what we'd been working with before, but not entirely. So I had to do a bunch of like combining categories, so summing up categories across different regions and geos. And then combining the regions and geos. So we might have had like Eastern Europe, Western Europe, right? Needed to be combined into Europe. And then I need to combine all of the different Asian countries in and, and Australia and stuff into APAC, right? So while the data on its own was good, I stumbled through that one. It was brutal. Just like which line did I mistake or something, right? Because I have to keep checking it. 
And then I finally got all that right. And I found out that one of the export sheets that the, the data provider sent had, um, you know, all the things were in like one decimal point, right? And for two regions um, in for like three, three sections of Central and South America, they provided the same decimal point, but it wasn't the right one. It was off by a factor of 100. And I've been tallying all these things up, but because I had been doing all these formulas and combining, I was like, why is this not checking out? Like these numbers are hundred times larger than they should be. And I just said that off the cuff and it didn't click with me. I was like, why is it so bad? So I pinged the guy who got it for me. I was like, hey, the data is bad in this report. Like, can you pull another one? And he was already out for the night. And I slept on it. And the next day I was like, shit, I said it was off by a hundred. I double checked it. I was like, it's off by exactly 100. The, the data report had changed the decimal without any notation for those countries alone. And so as soon as I figured that one out, like it, it made sense. I just had to put the decimal point in and fix their export issue. But yeah, like being, being on top of that stuff is difficult. Uh, it's not easy. I'm waiting for more automation to come in and, and go, this isn't right. Like, yeah. Hunting down the, uh, the formula that's wrong or, or formatting. Um, you know, what would be great is like, um, you know, like programmers have debugging tools and stuff. Yeah. Um, I know Excel has like the formula check where it'll tell you what's wrong, but that thing is so useless to me. Cause it'll be like this step, this step and break. I'm like, well, what happened between that step and break that broke it? Right. It doesn't tell me anything. Um, I didn't know that existed. Oh, just go into Excel, create literally any formula that's not valid, and it'll tell you it's going to break. And then, like, you right-click and oh, say, okay. like, debug this or something, right? But it's not super useful. Oh, yeah. It, it's like, yeah. Uh, this. I expected I expected three where I got two. Yeah, uh, and it, but it won't even tell you that. It'll just say, like, it'll work the formula. It'll go, okay, this variable equals whatever you put in, and this variable equals that, and then it goes break. And I'm like, okay, well, I see how you got that and that, and then I still don't understand why it broke. Okay, completely useless. Dang. Yeah, I was doing some sheets, Google Sheets, and <clears throat> following the whole process. Everything's laid out right, and it's still not working. And it's, nope. I had an elect, uh, equal sign, and I'm like, yeah. it told me to put the equal sign there. As soon as I yeah. removed it, everything worked. And I'm like, oh, well, thank right? you. I spent I, like 40 minutes trying to get a SUMIF statement working, and I could I could not get it to work. It just kept returning zeros. And so I checked my syntax. I Googled it and everything. I even created like a different table of just bullshit data, right? Just to test this sum if statement. It would work on the table that I created that was full of bogus data. I'd apply that same exact like formula to the table I was trying to work on zero every time. I'm like, I give up. I have no idea. Yeah. Sometimes it's just irritation. Cell so content, riveting. Yep. This is how you grow your audience right here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you like uh, so you like cars, and uh, how about uh, an automation? How about uh, self-driving cars? Have you been in? Have you like gotten to drive one? Like I I hate those uh, to be honest with you because I like cars from like I like the experience of driving them. You know, when I had my Ferrari, the just the way it drove um, and that connection with the road is the experience, right? Uh, same thing in my other ones. My girlfriend's got a Hyundai, which has like the automated lane departure system. Uh. And it annoys me to no end because it'll beep at you and chirp at you. Um, and she has a she has a, a chinchilla. And when you pick the chinchilla up, it doesn't like being picked up. It'll do what she calls cacking. Um, it's like distress calls. It goes cack, cack, right? Like like that. Like it just chirps. I said, your, your car is like cacking at you. It's distressed because it thinks you're going to go over the lane. Um, but I had a really bad experience with that in particular um, where we were in Colorado coming down one of those mountain passes 
that does very big like S-curve turns with concrete oh. barriers on one side and a cliff on the other. And it had misread the road and it tried to navigate us into the concrete barrier. And that terrified me because that automated system was trying to correct something that wasn't broken. But because it's not a very good system, unless you're on like very specific, like flat pavement, very clearly defined things, it overrode it because that's what it'll do. It'll override your steering to keep you in a lane. But what it ended up doing was almost overriding us into a concrete barrier doing about 65 miles per hour down a mountainside. And that like my adrenaline was rushing. My, my, my heartbeat was pumping. Like yeah. I was to that. And I just is like, you know, I've, I vowed not to have that kind of system for as long as possible because there's just so many problems in them. We're not quite to that real self driving yeah. stage yet. At some point we will be, but, until it's really, really viable, I have no desire for that. I'm confident in my own driving capabilities. I enjoy the act of driving. It's an experience for me. I try to avoid cars where I'm not getting a really enjoyable experience, you know? And so for me, it's not a problem, but you know, um, the technology is coming along, but I think we're still a long ways off. Yeah, mine, uh, mine uh, does a little bit like when I get to a, a lane, it might like shift over and I'm like, is, is, is it me or is it the car? Oh, it's unsettling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you compared her car to a chinchilla. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah. Just, I sh probably shouldn't yeah. call that out, but it's just, it's just it's an interesting no, point. <laughs> yeah. It was distress calling because it thought we were over lanes. Man, that's got to be terrifying. 65, man, because I've been on some of those, those like, mountain roads and it is like looking over this like i'm gonna grip in the wheel tight and yeah well and, and, and it's really interesting too because like when you get used to driving down them especially in a car that has like a lot of feedback you can feel when the car is going down you can feel when the car is gripping on the edge of the tires and its weight shifts and then it really bites in so in the ferrari for instance you're going down and you can feel it catch and grip you can throw it into a corner much faster than other cars because the suspension and the tires are working in unison to really keep it planted, right? And in my other cars, they have more body roll because they're GTs, they're not sports cars, right? So they have a bit more body roll than the, than the Italian one, but they also have that bit where you can tell it's on the edge of the grip for the center portion of the tire, and then the outer edges of the tire catch, right? So now you've got more grip in lateral Gs, right? And you can feel that in these cars. And so you feel very confident because you understand where the limits are for the most part, right? You're, you're pretty in tune after you've done this for a while. Um, but on cars which have like electrically assisted steering where you don't get the steering feel and where they are, the, the, the bodies are more, um, I guess the, what I'm trying to say is like the suspension is more comfortable for everyday driving and it's not designed to give you the feedback. That yeah. scares me because I, I feel numb. I don't know where the edge is. I can't tell if I'm going to break loose because I'm not getting the input, right? Um, but but having a car where you can get that and feel that input, it it, it sounds kind of like opposite land because you're like, okay, it's, it's got fewer of those safety features, right? Where it's not nannying it, but you become a better driver because you get more input. And as a driver, you are more experienced than the nanny yeah. system. So you've already uh, that uh, you've already beaten on the uh, way ahead of me on the bucket list of owning a Ferrari. Do you still? I mean, <laughs> seriously, like I'd like to be seen in a Ferrari. I don't know. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, it was uh, <laughs> interesting times in 2020. You know, I remember we'd entered lockdown and 
I was like, I don't have enough money for a house right now, but you know, I've got, I could sell my, my Jaguar and, and, um, at the time, you know, everything was basically fire sale, right? Because everybody was worried about the, the thing. And this goes back to that conversation at the beginning of the, of the, of the show about, you know, buying kind of greedily when markets are down. Uh, right. I got the, the cheapest 360 in the market, um, which sounds kind of bad because you think, oh, you got a beater or something. No, no, no. I got um, a really well-sorted one with $30,000 worth of, of maintenance records from the prior six years where all the major components have been fixed. But the guy selling it didn't know how to list it. He didn't know anything really technically. And he was very motivated to get out of it. And I was like, well, okay. you know, <laughs> Lucky but, you, man. Yeah. And so sure. it worked out well. Man, that is awesome. You had a Jaguar? Oh, yeah, yeah. I got a couple of them. I got another one now. So I had my previous one I really liked. Um, after the Ferrari, I got another one. Um, but Man, there, that that's awesome. my thing. Like, I, I, if I were a smart person, I probably wouldn't have expensive, like, to repair or maintain cars. I would probably be investing the money in the stock market and crypto and stuff like that. But like I said, I'm not a smart person. I'm a, an emotional person. Impulsive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm over here like, man, I need to come over and just do TikTok videos. Right. <laughs> like, look what I got. <laughs> yeah, you don't need a title for that, right? Right. right. <laughs> no proof of ownership. Just <laughs> Casey, we're in a parking lot. Can you stop? <laughs> Can we just get into the store? <laughs> Oh, I see the uh, the Goonies shirt. It's it's pretty interesting actually because we moved to the Oregon coast uh, over the summer, and I went and saw the Goonies house. And there's a really cool brewery nearby that is all about Goonies stuff. So oh really? If you're a fan of the Goonies, like really cool wow. place where they did all the filming. I also saw where they filmed Free Willy, which is actually in the same town as where they filmed most of the Goonies. Uh, so that was kind of cool too. Wow. Yeah. So you're up at the coast now. Yep. Yep. Wow. What's that? Um... So Portland is uh how close is that? I'm trying. Depending on which way you drive, about two hours twenty or just over three hours. Because if you go up the coast and then across, it's about three hours. But if you go straight through the center at an, like a forty-five degree angle, it's about two and two and twenty. Yeah, I went there one time. I just don't remember. I don't know. We, we road trip. It's just random. Yeah. And, and then uh, have you been to Eugene? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Funny story, like when we were moving here, uh, the seller of the house couldn't close the house after we'd already packed and moved all our stuff from Denver. And so we basically had to rotate around the state of Oregon for six and a half weeks. So we rotated between like Eugene, Portland, Salem, uh, the coast, just up and down until she could finally close. Eugene's very nice this time of year. That sounds fun. Um, yeah, I mean, at times. On the other hand, um, you know, we had our pets with us. The the chinchilla was in a in a tiny little cage because we'd only driven like across country with the expectation we'd get him out, you know, as soon as we got here. And and he has like a five foot tall cage that my girlfriend built. So that poor creature was in what is essentially like a jail holding cell for seven weeks. Um, our dog, you know, was not happy just being in the car for hours at a time when we were driving from you know Eugene yeah. to the coast or to Portland or whatever, right? Uh, every day was basically like, okay, we'd get up. If we had a, an Airbnb, we'd work from the Airbnb as best we could, right? And then on the days where we had to get out of the Airbnb, it's like, okay, well, we got to be up by 10. So we got to be up by like seven, take our first sets of calls, make some excuse to not take calls for a couple hours, do the last cleanup, 
get out of there, go find a cafe or somewhere. Because like, even if we got another Airbnb or hotel, you don't get checked until four, right? So you have like five hours in your work that you've got to kill. We were like trying to find public libraries. We were rotating through coffee shops. Um, we had to keep coming out to make sure like the air conditioning was running for the pets and stuff. Like it was not a good time. I mean, some of the parts were good, you know, but, but it was just a really stressful time. And then there was like, um, there were legal contentions with a seller due to the incurred, uh, occurred costs and stuff. And, you know, a whole bunch of just surprises that had all of a sudden cropped up that weren't there in May when we actually tried to close. Wow. Yeah, Casey and I both moved this year. We could talk about like, oh, it's crazy moving. We don't have that. So, <laughs> no. Where'd you guys end up moving to? <laughs> Not together, I'm assuming. But <laughs> I moved. I think it was like what five fifty, five hundred fifty feet from my old house. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, we moved. It was, uh... it was bad. It was. That is, don't ever do Five. that. Don't ever do that. Was it that is. literally like one house after the house beside you or? It's four houses down. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's more painful because you're like, I'm only moving four houses. Why am I, yeah. why am I drive the everything truck? in boxes just to unpack it? Let's just grab stuff and start taking it down. Just and then it's across like dollies the whole time. Four days to move stuff, and we're like, "Oh, oh, yeah." Kevin's yeah. was a bit more dramatic than mine. Yeah. Um, oh, it was. No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we no, we. Um, no, we uh, we moved from uh, Keller over to North Lake, which I didn't. You know, I I had seen it on a map before. Um, yeah. but it's like yeah. just in Argyle, like just, just, just a little bit South of Denton. It's like popping up the whole community of houses being like built up all around. I'm like, this was like the boondocks, like oh, yeah. most yeah. of my life. So, um, yeah, we moved, uh, uh, earlier this year and then, um, yeah, like trying to get resettled is difficult. Then, then our oldest and her husband moved out because they were staying. They were staying with us, so we helped them move. In-laws moved in here, so the moving process has continued. And each one of those, none of them compare to that six to seven weeks. Of, like, I don't know how you, I don't yeah. know how you did it. <laughs> there was a point near the end where we were like, okay, we're gonna have to take it to to trial um, and arbitration. It's probably gonna cost like another ten grand minimum, up to sixty grand. Like, how badly do we want this house or not? Right. Um, maybe we just say, screw it. We go, we looked at apartments and their apartments in Oregon are a lot cheaper than they are in Colorado. And we're like, this is like literally 40% less than we're paying. We might as well just rent one of these for like a year. Cause most of them are even month to month with no like stupid markup. And in Colorado, most markets, you go month to month on an apartment, they're charging you like an extra four or 500 bucks a month. Right here that's just the regular rate. Right. So there's no, no real incentive not to go month to month. I'm like, well, you know, we can just go month to month on an apartment and see what shakes out in 2023. Right. Like, cause the whole time interest rates were rising and it's like, okay, if we sit much longer, not only like, are we going to accrue um, legal expenses, but the interest rate had changed on us yeah. twice. And so it's like, it won't be worth it regardless yeah. because yeah, I mean, from when we started our Paul our our search in March, when I got pre-qualified, my interest rate was like three point something, three point three one, and then 
by the time we found the place and we're ready to close it, it had the, the mortgage rates from the Fed had gone up in May. And so it ended up becoming like five point something. And it was literally a $400 a month difference for the same place. Oh my God. And so I was like, if it goes up any further, like it's just not going to be worth it anymore. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's a kick in the pants. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, the whole process was a, a series of kicks. So uh, you got the uh, you got the random questions ready, Casey? Yeah. So we do a random. I'm looking around on my. I'm not desk allowed to I... ask them this time. Uh-oh. He's not. <laughs> he got banned after last week. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was the most embarrassing moment in my entire life. I'm gonna have to watch the previous one to see where that cropped up. Ask Ask him your random question, Kevin. Go ahead. And I asked it quickly, which didn't help, and I hadn't rehearsed. It was, uh, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar, and why did you do it? <laughs> uh, but I just uh, rattled it off quickly. Oh, sorry, <laughs> if you want to answer. <laughs> I mean, first off, I'm a, I'm a plead shaggy. It wasn't me. Um, <laughs> next, my, my next response would be a little bit of... Um, of uh, O.J. Simpson... If I were to do it, right? Here's how I would have done it. Do you have a white right. Bronco? Yeah, right. <laughs> My third response would be because it was a chocolate chip cookie. So, like, obviously. <laughs> I was testing. Yeah. What, what is it hackers do? I was penetration testing the defenses of your cookie jar. You're welcome. I identified a gap in your security. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Kevin, we may be asking that question every time now. <laughs> Let's see. If I, maybe if I had said it slower, I practiced it before. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're on to the more serious question. <laughs> So what is your favorite fast food restaurant? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, just off the top of my head, I'd have to go with either Qdoba for Tex-Mex or Chick-fil-A for the Lord's Chicken. I know all the controversy around it, but I have not found a better chicken sandwich and fries as much as I've tried. Um, also, uh, what is the name of that one? Raising Cane's with the chicken tenders. Man, they are like the best. They finally made their way to Colorado recently, and then we left Colorado. So I'm like really craving some really good chicken, and I have no solution for either of those. And it is hard to beat Chick-fil-A. <clears throat> I don't know that I've eaten Raising Cane's. How have you not had Raising Cane's? I feel like really? it's just like a basic rite of passage at every agency in Dallas for like the past decade. Like somebody yeah. just goes to Raising Cane's for lunch runs. They were a client at an agency I was at. So yeah, yeah I don't know. I have no idea how I didn't. It just. Yeah, that's oh, you have to get it with the cane sauce and the Texas toast. They butter and toast so perfectly. You're gonna hit a food coma afterwards, so don't do it for lunch, but absolutely do it for dinner. Just go get like the four pieces with the toast and the side of coleslaw on the sauce. Order extra sauce, it costs like 50 cents, nobody cares, but it's amazing. Oh, it's the best. All right, there, I've got it. I could really eat your toast. Yeah, right. It's it's amazing how so good it is. Yeah, I don't know what they do. But it's amazing. All right. So, do you? Next question. Do you have a favorite podcast? Oh, this or one. You, or a YouTube channel? Obviously. Yeah, I'll I like that one. answer. Uh, obviously. 
Two thumbs I, up. I don't know. Like, I, I don't really listen to podcasts. I do listen to like a lot of stuff on YouTube, and I use YouTube as a podcast, if that makes sense. Because, yeah. like, I'll just put it on my phone and listen to it in the background, and it doesn't have to have the screen on. So it's like a podcast because I'm not watching the video. Um, yeah, same exact thing. Yeah. 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 YouTube's my favorite podcast app. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? Um, yeah. So I have physically read Jurassic Park two or three times and The Lost World another three times. And then I've listened to each of those on Audible, Jurassic Park twice, Lost World three times. And then um, Congo, I've read twice and I've listened to uh, once on Audible. So Michael Crichton's my homie. Um, I love his works. Those ones are so great because you just, you dig in, there's just these delicious details in the way it's written. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, and the screen adaptations, Jurassic Park was pretty good. Congo was okay. Um, and I think it was kind of groundbreaking for its visual effects, particularly on like the gorilla um, that they did. But it came off more campy than the book. And the book, you know, it's just so so detailed in the depiction of um, the the struggles of, of going into the jungle, of, of um, adventuring out and being sort of an out-of-place academic, right, like half the cast was uh, in, in this environment. And then he pulls from all of, like, the South African uh, incursions into, like, neighboring countries from the 80s and, and stuff when he was writing this. And so all of those wars that that were going on it formed the backdrop of this setting right and then you've got on top of that the dawn of like the semiconductor industry and um high technology and so you've got these corporate sort of proxy wars going on both between like base camp and america that's leading these outfitted um expeditions into the congo then you've got the actual wars between like the tribes in the area plus then the governments and then the corporations themselves and it talks about like all the electronic warfare that they're doing uh to throw the others off the trail to this diamond for instance so it's just it's it's everything you could want from like an indiana jones style adventure right but also this like high technology corporate espionage thing it, it's just fantastic i love the way he does that um, and he does that successfully between like, again, Jurassic Park is a very similar setup. Um, and Lost World, of course, continues that. Um, I think one of the things I saw in Lost World, the book that I, I regret that they never really did in the movies was um, the opening scene of the book talks about one of the guys, you know, Ken Levine, I believe, um, going to the, the island. And then he's got a, a guide with him and they pick up um, like a sample that they send back to the mainland for analysis. And that kicks off like the rest of the events of the book. Right. And you find out that the sample that they find in the beginning ties into like these dinosaurs near the end that are completely unique. Um, they're Carnotaurus, right? And the Carnotaurus um, in the book uh, is a cuttlefish chameleon, right? So it's a chameleon, but unlike a, a lizard chameleon, the chameleon capabilities are actually more advanced like cuttlefish or octopus, right? Where they're extremely fast and they're ambush predators. And so there's this scene in the book where um, they are being chased by velociraptors and they find like one of the little sh shacks or, or shanty towns where the workers had been doing stuff and they get into what they think is like a safe area and, and the velociraptors like stop they just they won't go near and so the protagonists have like a bit of breathing room and they're trying to work out like why are these raptors not chasing us like it's it's in the back of their mind like 
first front of the mind is like, thank God for not being eaten. Right. But the back of the mind is like, this is weird behavior for these things. Yeah. Right. And they talk about like, at some point, like a Tyrannosaur goes by and the Tyrannosaur sniffs the area and it fucks off. It's like, I don't want anything to do with this area. And at that point, like the hairs on the back of their, of their neck are kind of going off. Cause they're like, okay, what, what scares off a Tyrannosaur? Right. And one of the guys goes out to like fix the power. Cause again, it's at night and everything. And you find out about these chameleon dinosaurs that are ambush predators. And it's just really incredibly inventively written. And they never did that in the Lost World movie. It made it into the Lost World arcade game. Uh, so if you ever played the arcade game in like any arcade, you'll, you'll see that. Um, and then they gave a tribute to it in the Jurassic World movie where the Indominus Rex being able to camouflage comes from that dinosaur in that book. So that was kind of a cool little nod. I didn't make that connection. I got it. Yeah. Well, and you got to read the book like three times, and then you'll have it back, 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 <laughs> covered, covered. I, I read Jurassic uh, Jurassic <laughs> Park multiple times. I think I only read uh, Jurassic uh, World once, um, but I, but that's where I remember uh, prions. Trying to yeah. tell other people about yeah. prions, they're like, "What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> that one I like, thought was uh, a really can, cool scenario too. Yeah, can you uh, can you explain the prions bit? Um, not not adequately. No. Okay. Um. <laughs> it has to do with the velociraptors in that in that book and essentially like when they were cloning the the raptors and stuff um they got like a rare genetic i don't call it disease but a condition related to the prions essentially which made them basically rabid um and because what they were finding was like the velociraptors in the book were not only uh acting like the pack hunters they were in the previous one but then they were becoming almost um extremely aggressive even to like the young um, and very territorial and, and, and foaming, I think, at one point at the mouth, very similar to rabies. And they determined it was like these this prions disease that had gone astray in their genetic code and really, like, devastated the population. And it was kind of an interesting little twist. Yeah, they, uh, I've, I've seen cases of, uh, of entire herds of deer get wiped out by, uh, by prions, yeah. and then they, they, uh, and they come back and they you know, have to cull the whole herd. Uh, and they've, in some cases, have tried to repopulate the area with deer, and those deer have caught it again. Um, so there's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's you can tell people about bacteria and then viruses and uh, prions, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. No, drawing I'm, blanks. <laughs> great. But that's the detail level that he puts in that I just love because it's like I learned something here. I learned about prions, for instance, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I gotta go. I, n I never watched. Uh, um, uh, I'd seen it. Seen the uh, what? Uh, what should we call it? Congo. Oh, Congo. Congo is. It's a good movie in its own right. Like it's cheesy, but they captured what they could. So much of it. Like there's a scene where like the gorilla is being given a, a margarita to drink on the plane, and you think, okay, this is just Hollywood doing some stupid shit for effect. But it's straight from the book. Like they gave her, you know, margaritas on the plane because she'd been accustomed to drinking in the presence of humans because humans had given her, you know, human-like social activities, right? She'd picked them up. And so, like, it's interesting what they adapted and then what they added to the movie. Um, what's his name? The guy who played um, in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And um, Tim Curry. Tim Curry is fantastic in Congo. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, um, I love Tim so. Curry. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. I, I like it. But he's not in the book, but he's in the movie. So, yeah, I got to go check that out. 
Um, yeah. yeah, and then of course Jurassic Park. Yeah, just that one. I, there's something that's you just can't translate Jeff Goldblum's character without like attaching like those those sections as it's telling the story in the book. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I don't. I don't know how you could have put all of that on screen. It was. Uh, no, but they did a pretty good job overall. I think you know. Oh and, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Love that movie. Watch yeah. that one and Jurassic World, uh, sorry, um, Jurassic um, uh, Lost World so many times. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not allowed to now. We have a 23-month-old. When I said you'll be scared of dinosaurs forever. So <laughs> there's um, there's a park building game that's out that looks really good where you get to like create your own Jurassic Park and stuff. Yeah, you showed me. I've got to get that. What? Yeah. What? It's there is so a... good because like, yeah, go for it. There is a... a I want you to tell me, but there's um, there's a, a car mechanic uh, game too. Oh, I'm sure there's a car mechanic game. Yeah. What is this um, Jurassic Park game? It's called yeah. Jurassic World Evolution Two, and so you can create the classic Jurassic Park parks. You can create the Jurassic World parks, and what I like about it is. Um, you can get all the different dinosaur variations from the different movies and properties. So like, you know, the, the Velociraptors in the first Jurassic Park were like gray, right? Gray, brown. Then in Lost yeah. World, they did that really cool tiger stripe thing. Then in yeah. Jurassic Park 3, they changed them to like even a different thing with some feathers. And then oh, yeah. in Jurassic World, they got um, very similar to the original gray ones, but then they gave them like colors on the snouts for like blue and Delta and Echo and stuff, right? So you can get all of these different like uh, variations of them. You can kind of add which ones you prefer as as your own. Like it's pretty cool. I have yet to see the latest the the, the uh, sixth the, movie. <laughs> oh, I haven't. Like I got burned on the first Jurassic World. You know, I, I had such mixed emotions of that. Um, but yeah, let's see here. Um, here, here's a link in the chat to the the thing. But the beauty is like the graphics that we have these days are so good that the dinosaurs look really good. The, the parks look really good. Uh, so it's, it's really like that kind of sandbox gameplay. Like as a child, I was like dying for it. And now it's finally around. Oh, my God. I may have to acquire that game. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. And you can do stupid stuff like um, I don't know if you guys ever played The Sims, but you would like put your Sims in a house and remove all the doors and the bathrooms and everything. Just watch them go crazy. You can like build the uh, the park here, and then just drop like a bunch of different carnivorous dinosaurs into like the same enclosure and see what happens while they fight. You know, like stupid stuff, or like remove parts of the fence when the tour bu- or tour tour trucks are going by, and like watch the dinosaurs go and, and wreck them. Does it have mini screams? Ah! Yeah, yeah, and then they can awesome. like dispatch hunter tracker teams to like go round them up and stuff. You know, like it, it's cool. Oh, dude, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's gonna have to happen. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. I say let's wrap it up there. Yeah. Got to uh, go on high note and can't get much higher than Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoyed this talk. <laughs> yeah, same thing. I did. So, um, Kevin, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, no, no. That Man, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Ryan. Man, um, I got to check out those. Uh, I got to go back and do more on Discovery uh, campaigns. Yeah. 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 Always, always be testing stuff. Uh, it's hard sometimes, but yeah, that's my takeaway from, from what I've learned. I, I feel like I've learned a lot in the last four years. Yeah. I've got to constantly step outside uh, what I'm doing and, and jump. Uh, all right. 